all transformation is story transformation. If, if you want to change as a human being, then you have to change the story you're living in. Have you taken any of the personality tests that are so popular? DISC, Myers-Briggs, Strengths Finders, Cosmo Quizzes, which Sex in the City character are you while you're endlessly scrolling on socials? The list goes on and on, and honestly, our minds are so complex. There's something really comforting about having a framework to understand how and why you operate the way you do and how to understand others around you. Enneagram is one that has really hit the cultural zeitgeist zeitgeist lately. And when I asked today's guest, Ian Morgan Cron, one of the foremost leaders on the topic, what made Enneagram better than any of the others? He said, because Enneagram doesn't just only talk about the positive attributes, but also the shadows and how to use them. So it's a lot more robust. And in this series, we are talking all about reparenting yourself. And wouldn't you know, Ian Morgan Cron just released a book, get this, on reparenting yourself through the lens of Enneagram. It's called The Story of You, an Enneagram journey to becoming your true self. How cool is that? And if you're wondering, what number am I? I'm a three-wing four. And uh, if you know me, you're probably like, no shit. But I'm so excited to have Ian Morgan Cron on today. He is a best-selling author, psychotherapist, Enneagram teacher, Episcopal priest, and the host of the wildly popular podcast, Typology, which has over 17 million downloads. I mean, priest, psychotherapist, author, and podcaster, you know this is going to be juicy. Enneagram has broken down to nine different archetypes, and Ian is going to break down how you use those types to help rewire some of those old stories that maybe have been holding you back as an adult. But before we jump in, will you do me a favor? I've got some really, really big things that I'm working on in terms of culture changers and and what I'm trying to do in general. When I started this podcast almost three years ago, I wanted to interview interesting thought leaders that were challenging the status quo and doing things differently. And while I checked that box, I've interviewed some earth-shaking folks like Seth Godin and Jesse Itzler and Heather Monahan and all these fascinating people. But the way this podcast has evolved, though, something else has emerged. And based on your feedback, I've adapted the podcast to focus on where is your place in the story? How do you change the culture? And you probably, if you've been following me and know that I I kind of changed things up, I think, in the fall of this past year, and everything is different. And what I learned is that culture change is an inside job. And through the pandemic, I've heard over and over and over and over, I want to make an impact. I don't want to just go to work and earn a paycheck unless it's meaningful work. So we've heard of the great resignation. And, you know, people are saying, I don't know that I want to be the perfect mom anymore. I'm just too burned out. I want to be a mom that feels seen and not alone anymore. I want to feel like I'm making a difference. So it feels like 
kind of breaking out of the paradigms that, um, that we've just grown up knowing. So when I think about the monster problems of the world, things that may be really personal and important to you, maybe it's homelessness or access to healthcare or uh, curing cancer or food insecurity, political division, mental health, all of those things. But those topics seem so daunting to figure out to fix on your own. I mean, these are global problems. But I'm learning that if you understand yourself much deeper than you thought, you deconstruct some of the old constructs that you've been told by society and realize the framework is broken. It no longer works. That's why there's so much stress and anxiety in our bodies. It doesn't serve you or the world anymore. And I think that the world is ready for the evolution. And now it's time to take our power back. And once you have that awareness, the path to change becomes much, much clearer. And if this is resonating for you, you are listening to the exact right episode and exact right podcast. And my favor, my mission is to help you understand yourself better so you can find your place in the story and we can grow this audience into a movement. I've heard you. I've heard that you're taking some of these episodes and sharing them in your communities. You're creating groups of action groups in your own circles to take these ideas and put them into practice. And I can't tell you how much that means to me. Like I said, I've been doing this for three years and just pouring my heart and soul, hoping that somebody hears this and it makes a difference for you in your own life. And I love hearing when it does. So my ask is, can you share this episode and this podcast with the people you know that are digging deeper, that are looking for more, looking for their place in the story? And if you're interested in getting the inside scoop and join me on my own journey, I hope you'll sign up for my weekly emails at allisonhair.com. This is a very important episode, and I want to hear how it moves you to rethink some of the frameworks that you live in and knew to be true, and maybe bend and stretch even more as we evolve. Here is my conversation with Ian Morgan Cron. So I've been reading your new book. So you have smashed records as a best-selling author for your previous book, The Road Back to You. Now you've got the story of you. And in our world, we're talking all about reparenting, reparenting yourself, rewiring those stories. Tell me, what is this book about for you? Why did you write this book? Well, I mean, the book really is about um, how to change your story, right? I mean, uh, I think um, Dan McAdams, the psychologist at Northwestern, he puts the whole book into one sentence. All transformation is story transformation. If, if you want to change as a human being, then you have to change the story you're living in, right? Um, all of us as kids craft a story that serves us in childhood and then eventually works against us in adulthood, right? And uh, the Enneagram, actually, which is what the Road Back to You uh, is about, suggests that there are nine personality types. And I would also suggest that there are nine archetypal stories that people inhabit and live that serve them as little people because they help make sense of the world and their experiences, mm. 
But man, when you drag those stories into adulthood, they just wreak havoc on you, right? Um, so I am so excited because I personally have so benefited from the journey of changing the story in which I live, right? And I'm just so excited to see people experience the same level of transformation as a result of uncovering that story and rewriting a new story that aligns with their values and with who they want to be in this world. Yeah. So when I was reading the book, so I'm a three, uh, three is the, what are they? The achiever? Is that the, 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 yes, they're called the achiever. Sometimes they're called the performer, the performer. And so I'm, I'm very productivity driven. And as I was reading this chapter and so excited to hear about Lisa Welchel, <laughs> Blair from facts of life, you know, right. um, I, I really started relating to that when she said that she spent an entire month on uh, like in a in a silent retreat and ended up writing <laughs> like a hundred and eight thousand page manuscript or something. I'm like, I would totally do that. You know, I, I really related to it. And and as I was thinking through how do I solve, not solve the problem, but like rewrite a story, I would love to understand, you know, when we think about stories, and I would love to get your synopsis of the nine archetypes. I think it's important, but as I was thinking about the the stories that we have held so tight, they've they've helped us protect us, I guess, when we were young, and they were they would help us kind of identify who we are. Without these stories, who are we? So I would love to get your take on that. Yeah. So you know, um, these are broken, self defining stories, right? They're the stories we picked up in these internalized, real or perceived messages that we internalize as little people about who we are, who we have to be in order to be loved and get our needs met, and also uh, to explain to ourselves, well, how does the world work? So, example, for example, the performer or achiever story is based on the, the, false, the false assumption that I have to be successful. Uh, I have to appear successful and I have to avoid failure at all costs or I won't be loved because the world only values people who uh, are successful and not do in life, right? Now, that story helps performers survive childhood, right? Mm -hmm. And there's, it's you know, it, it helps you get going. But when you bring that unconscious story into adulthood and it's running the show and you don't know it, it can really start to cause you a lot of problems. Might become a workaholic, might lose your marriage because you work too hard. You might become so productivity driven that you don't pay enough attention to your children. It, the list goes on and on. And it's the same for all nine uh, of these stories. And, you know, uh, you can embody the best of that story and begin to shed those parts of the story that are causing you a lot of problems in life. I think that's so fascinating. Can you talk through, I love how you start at eight, right? Like eight, there are nine different, but you start eight, nine, one, yeah. two, three. Can you, can you do an overview of Enneagram and what each of those mean? Sure. So the Enneagram is an ancient personality typing system that teaches this there are nine. This is not invented by you. This has been around for a no. long time, right? That's right. It's an ancient 
personality typing system that teaches there are nine basic personality styles in the world, one of which we gravitate toward and adopt in childhood as a way to cope, to feel safe, and to navigate the, the world of relationships. Very importantly, each of those nine types has an unconscious motivation, or maybe we could say story, right? That uh, powerfully influences how that type habitually and predictably acts, thinks, and feels from moment to moment on a daily basis, right? So there are nine types. And I'll just run through very quickly yep. one, or, one or two sentences about each type. Uh, and what I'm going to articulate is the unconscious motivation that drives the way that these different types act, think, and feel. Okay. So ones are called the perfectionists. Sometimes they're called the improvers, which I think is a better name. These are conscientious, reliable, dependable, uh, detail-oriented people whose story um, uh, and unconscious motivation is a need to perfect themselves, others, and the world. They also have a need to be right. Mm. To avoid judgment, to avoid being judged and blamed or criticized. Okay. Um, so, two is one the- question. I, I know I don't yeah. mean to cut you off, but I was wondering why you, you changed the name. So, in your first book, you called it The Perfectionist. And in your second book, it's now called The Improver. And you said people were right. very thankful that they changed it. Can I ask why? Yeah, because I had about a million. Uh, Enneagram one uh, perfectionists who kept saying to me, why is our signifier, our name, uh, sort of negative when every other type is neutral, right? Oh, and okay. And I'm like, okay, I will fix that. And Improver actually, yeah, Improver is a better name for them anyway. Yeah. Okay. Please continue. So twos. Yeah. Twos are called the helpers, warm, supportive, caring, self-sacrificing, generous people who really just want to be liked. Now, all of us want to be liked, but twos really want to be liked and appreciated. Their unconscious motivation, the needs of others, which is a strategy for winning the approval and appreciation of other people. Uh, and, you know, they could be uh, you know amazing human beings when they're healthy. Uh, and when they're not, they're kind of a disaster, like every other mm. number on the Enneagram. But do you see, by the way, before I go any further, that that's a story that we tell ourselves yeah. about who we are and how the world works, right? The, the two story is based upon this belief that no one will love me unless I, dis, I, I refuse to acknowledge my own personal needs and meet the needs of others, right? That becomes, you know, in modern parlance, you might say sort of a codependent spiral, right? It's like, I got to take care of everybody else. And uh, while at the same time, ignoring my own needs, right? That's a story that a kid can pick up as a little person. This is what I got to do. This is how I get love. And when they bring that story into adulthood, you've met helpers who are really crazy people, right? Mm-hmm. Who, are, who are trapped in a story that is just causing them and other people suffering. Mm-hmm. You know? So the whole point of the book, the story of you is, Let's exhume those stories, find out which one is ours, and rewrite it. So what does then, a rewrite look like, let's say, for a two? Yeah, so it's pretty much the same for every type. I, I use an acronym in the book, which is SOAR, S-O-A-R. Yeah. 
So the first part of the journey is to see, like, you got to exhume the story and like, write it down, man. Like, what has been the story of your life? And so if you're a three on the Enneagram, like an achiever, you might sit down and go, well, you know, when I was a kid, I was sort of naturally bent in this direction. However, I had a teacher or a coach or a parent, and I picked up the message that unless I do this or that and succeed and be the best at everything that I do, then I wasn't really going to find love in the world. I wasn't going to find admiration, which is what I really hungered for. Now, that's the C part. Let's find out the story, right? Let's, Let's write our story down in 300 words, right? And then the second part is to own it. So this is a part of the journey that is kind of hard, which is, all right, what has that story cost you in adulthood? What has that Mm. story done to you in adulthood? What has it done to other people, right? While you were sort of trapped in the trance of that story. Then the the next phase of, of the journey of transformation is just to awaken. Like, what are the triggers that sort of throw you into that story, right? What are the things that uh, will cause you to relapse, if you will, mm. back into mm-hmm. the brokenness of that story? And then the R part is to rewrite. What is the story you want to live? Right? It's like, how do you say goodbye to that story? Thank it for how it helped you in childhood and write a new story that makes sense for you as an adult that will help you live into the highest expression of yourself and realize a new level of happiness. Isn't that the biggest honor? Aren't we all trying to figure out how to do this? But it sounds like so much of it, the C, own, what was the A? Awaken. Awaken. Like those are all just noticing, you know, like how many of us are sleepwalking through life, you know, kind of inhabiting or embodying these stories. And, you know, we we love stories. We love a narrative, right? So, you know, I, I, love the the idea of just noticing it or at least being able to stop and kind of evaluate and, and rewind a little bit and say, wait a minute, this is no longer serving me. So how do you begin to identify that? We'll need to go through all the Enneagram numbers too um, sure. and finish that. But, you know, I'd, I'd love to figure that out too. Sure. Well, I think that uh, oftentimes, let's talk about threes in particular, a lot of times we arrive at a place in life where we find ourselves making the same mistakes over and over again and not knowing why. We we might feel depressed and anxious. We might feel like our whole life we've been reading off a script that somebody else handed to us when we were little people. We feel like we lost a critical piece of who we are somewhere along the road, but we, we can't quite figure it out. And it's why it feels buried, you know? Mm-hmm. Um we may find that our relationships uh, aren't working. And sometimes we just have a major life crash. You know, we, you know, a three might fall into exhaustion, a four might fall into depression. It's like, you know, something comes along and upends us. And we're like, I've got to find a new story because this one is not working for me. Mm-hmm. Right. And uh, one of the cool things about um, the story of you is, is that every chapter has numerous examples of people who have made this journey. You just mentioned Lisa Welchel, yeah. right? Uh, the actress who is in the, the chapter on three. She's a good friend and shared that story with me. Uh, and, you know, there's a, a good list of people, some that people, some, some of the folks people will know, uh, others are mm-hmm. just regular day-to-day folks. And, and those stories I have found are 
are really, really helpful to people to see, oh, that's how you do it. Mm-hmm. You know, that's how you wake up and realize I'm in the wrong story. Oh, and that's how I can begin to rewrite a new one. I think I think having your background as a psychotherapist is really interesting to have this woven through because it's so deep, but it also is put in a way that's so uh, consumable, you know, where mm-hmm. you can easily recognize it. So let's continue going through the Enneagram. So we did one, two. We did a little bit of three as well. Yeah, let's move on to four. Yeah. Uh, okay, I'm a four on the Enneagram. We're, we're called the romantic, sometimes the individualists. We are the number on the Enneagram that we think is uh, least found in the population. Okay. Uh, Imaginative, creative, um, very attuned to beauty and aesthetics. Um, We are, can be moody, temperamental, uh, self-absorbed, melancholy, you know. uh, And you're a four, yeah? Oh, I am a four through and through. Yeah. And, um, but fours live in this story um, that is kind of like, I have something missing inside. I don't know what it is. However, I feel like I'm to blame for it not being there. Something essential in my makeup that, that everybody else seems to have except me. Right. And so I have to be special and unique in order to compensate for the missing piece. Now, I will tell you that as a little person, that story helped me survive and it helped me make sense of the world that I found myself in, right? I grew up with an alcoholic father, uh, a very dysfunctional family. I was a very little kid. I was into poetry. Kids didn't understand me. And so I began to craft a story. There's something off about me. There's just something kind of, you know, not what everybody else is, you know, yeah. and and not living the life other kids seem to be living. And I brought that story into adulthood with me. I continued to feel that way into my adulthood. It caused me a lot of problems in my 20s, a lot of problems in my 20s. And until I began to work on that story and, and realize I was living in that kind of a story. And then I began to rewrite it and say, no, nothing's missing. That was part of the journey of rewrite. Mm. You know, it's like, dude, there's nothing missing. You're, you're okay. Right. You don't have to be special and unique. In fact, by constantly trying to be special and unique, uh, you actually set yourself apart from the crowd and kind of thwart what you really want in life, which is belonging. Mm. Right. And so, again, you see how exciting it is to be able to exhume that story, to kind of bring it up into conscious awareness and then say, I don't want to live that story anymore. That story has hurt my marriage. It led to addictions in my life. It led to all kinds of of missed opportunities. It's like, no, I am not living that story anymore. And that whole process of seeing, owning, awakening, and rewriting was so powerful for me just to realize like, well, like Mo Willems, the the great author, the children's author says, he says, if you find yourself living in the wrong story, leave. (laughs) (laughs) So easy. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. You want to keep going? Yeah, let's keep going. I love this. Yeah. Okay. So fives are called um, the uh, investigators, sometimes the observers. These folks are uh, the most analytical number on the Enneagram. Mm. Um, They are knowledge junkies. Uh, They typically are introverted. Um, They are remarkably independent and self-sufficient. 
And they're the most emotionally distant or unavailable number on the Enneagram. So um, the broken story of the five, right, um, revolves around this belief that um, they only have so many internal resources to meet the demands of the world, right? Um, for them, it, it feels like the world is intrusive and um, it's always placing um, expectations on them, particularly in the relational sphere, that they just can't meet, right? So they protect themselves against that intrusion by reducing their own needs, observing rather than participating in life, isolating and gaining knowledge, tons of knowledge to fend off feeling inadequate and inept in life. Now, I have a friend of mine who's a five and, and uh, he grew up with a mom who was very engulfing, right? Very overwhelming, emotionally overwhelming. And uh, he just, he told me, he says, you know, I can remember as a little kid, I just, in order to kind of live in that world, I had to go up into my mind, you know what I mean? And yeah. hide. Yeah, I yeah. just had to hide away in the back of my mind. He says, you know, the fortress of the mind, it was the only place I could go. And he said, I, I would go into my bedroom. I had a little desk that faced a wall, not a window, but the wall. And on it, on the wall in front of me were all these maps and, you know, graphs and designs and all this stuff. He said, I would just sit at that desk and look at the wall. He said, the problem is that that did help me in my home, my childhood home, right? And then when I became an adult, I found myself lonely, detached, um, not able to um, spend uh, the kind of time with other people that, that was, would be life-giving to me. And I began to push away the very people who wanted to love and support me because I was so fiercely independent, <clears throat> right? So that story helped him as a little guy. Heard him big time as a as a and he's gone through the journey of rewriting that story and it's been really life changing for him. We all know people that are like that too, you know, like the people oh, that yeah. might be contrarians or, um, you know, or are so analytical that they're always looking. They're always looking mm -hmm. for, you know, for the story. Um, that's great. Mm -hmm. What about sixes? My husband, I I suspect is a six. Oh, uh, they're wonderful. I mean, sixes are called the loyalists and. Uh, Sixes uh, see a world in which something bad is always getting ready to happen. They're mm. worst case scenario thinkers, right? So they're scanning the horizon like, okay, what could go wrong here? What could go wrong here? And they're always mentally rehearsing what they're going to do when the catastrophe strikes. And that's indicative of what's going on beneath the surface, which is that sixes have uh, this unconscious terrible need to feel safe, secure, and supported in what feels like an unpredictable and, and chaotic world, mm. right? Um, now, that story, uh, again, if you, let's say you grew up in a home where you've gotten used to, for example, um, you know, uh, feeling unsafe, and you really did have to live in hypervigilant mode, right? Man, that helped you then. But it causes a lot of anxiety in adulthood. It can cause you to not do exciting or adventurous things that would be life-giving because you're afraid. Uh, it can lead to a lot of questioning in relationships, right? Questioning the strength of relationships and always getting ready, you know, for the worst. It can make you kind of negative. At worst, it could make you a little paranoid, right? That story's got to go so you can embrace a, a whole new one. Mm. 
I have questions around this. So if you have, so I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, operating in your strengths versus in your, you know, so I know that Enneagram has the positive things and it has the shadows as well. So my husband and I were talking, my husband is in his forties. He is a, a skateboarder. I mean, not a professional skateboarder, but he picked up the skateboard again um, in his forties and is very cautious by nature. And so he gets really mad at himself that he doesn't take more risks because he's just risk averse, you know, but he loves doing it. It it is life-giving to him. And he said, I just, I just want to stuff it down and just, you know, I, I think there is some benefit in the protective nature of who he is. So I wonder about, you know, like how you look at the shadows, like what does need to be changed or what is really part of who they are of, you know, being right. protective in that, in that scenario. Well, I think in the rewrite, you can say to yourself, look, there, here's the benefit of the story, right? Like, like it is a good thing to be somebody who can spot danger quicker than anybody else. Mm-hmm. But what happens if you're, that goes to an, an extent that you're, you're too afraid to do anything. Mm. So it's crippling. You know it's, it's, yeah. It's stopping you from living. Yes. Or, or even, you know, it doesn't have to stop you from living. It could just really handicap, right? You're, yeah. you're just, you're just too risk averse. And, uh, that can lead to a, a lot of problems. It can save you as a kid. It can kill you as an adult. You know, that's mm. overstated, but it, it's kind of true, right? Yeah. Um, and I've met plenty of sixes who look back with some regret that they lived in that story for so long because they they missed so many opportunities because they were afraid. Like I, I have a friend of mine who, who, when he left college, was offered a terrific job in the Middle East. And he he he's in his forties now, and he looks back and he's like, just kicks himself. He's like, I was just too afraid. Mm. I, I, the risk was too great, and you know. But thankfully, he's had time to work on himself to rewrite the story so that it makes space for those kinds of choices. Like, um, you know, Carl Jung has a great quote. He says, "Consciousness is curative," and and what he means is like. Like when you're conscious, when you're living awake and aware, and you can spot the story when it kicks into gear and you can say to yourself, you know, that's not the story I want to live in anymore. So I'm going to jump on the pipe and do this trick mm-hmm. <laughs> right? yeah. or I'm, or I'm going to go take this job because I'm not going to let fear run my life anymore. Right. right? Or I'm going to, you know, and then with that conscious awareness of the story and realizing this isn't working for me anymore. Mm. Like this is, this is preventing, like another friend of mine who's a six, right? She, I mean, we always laugh. It's like, you know, her kids, every time she sends them out to ride the bike, you know, it's like, she wants to put them in body armor. You know what I mean? And we're up, Mm -hmm. you know, her husband's like, you got to stop this. You're going to make our kids afraid of everything in life. Right. Yeah. And, And she's done a lot of work and has sort of done a lot of rewrite of the story she grew up in. And she's like, you know, if I don't get over this and rewrite this story, I'm going to, I'm going to really hurt my kids. You mm. know, I, they're going to, they're just going to see a really scary world and like where they can't live without mom, you know? And it's like, that's, that's what's at stake, you know, if we continue to live in false stories. Yeah. So, you know, going from the safety to the fun seven, tell us about the seven. Oh man, the sevens, right? So fun, adventurous, escapade-oriented, jokesters at times, amazing storytellers, sunny and optimistic, sometimes toxically optimistic, 
Hmm. right? There's that kind of toxic positivity mm-hmm. that we talk about in psychology. Sevens can suffer from that. Um, their, their self-limiting narrative or story arises from their unconscious belief that painful emotions, thoughts, or situations must be avoided at all costs because no one will be there to support them should they find themselves uh, stuck in one of those emotions or feelings or situations. So um, there's this fear of not being able to escape, right, from bad feelings. And we all know these people, right? They're, they're mm. oftentimes the class clowns and, you know, uh, the life the of the party. Who, yeah. Sometimes, sometimes they're the life of the party. But when they, my son's a seven, like when he walks into a room, there's so much juice. It's unbelievable. He just <laughs> comes in. People love to be around him because he's entertaining. He's fun. He's very spontaneous, you know? And, uh, but I can just tell you that he's had to do a lot of work because fundamentally under a lot of that stuff, that what they're running from is anxiety, mm. you know, mm-hmm. the f- fear, the fear that who will be there for me should things go wrong. I right? feel that way. I feel that way personally. Yeah. Mm. So I think that the, the sevens, um, you know, part of the rewrite for them is, you know, uh, guess what? Life involves suffering. It involves bad feelings. And uh, there will be people there to support me when I, I don't have to create Neverland all the time to run away from hard feelings. Mm. And I, I can become a deep person, not just a happy person, but a joyful, deep person who's able to allow suffering and pain to make me more noble, to, to be more heroic, to be someone of, of that has gravitas, you know? These are all great guides, you know, and even reading your book for all aspects of our personality, because there's so much of ones that I see myself in. And, you know, I'm a three, I'm three wing four. I can see myself in sevens. I can't see myself at all in, in fives. But, um, <laughs> but tell us about eights and then finally nines. Yeah. So eights are called the challengers. Um, these folks are, I mean, they are we all know eights. <laughs> oh my gosh. My mother is an eight. I got to tell you a story about my mom. So um, I mentioned in the book, I think my, my mom is in an assisted living home now. She's 93 years old. Wow. And, and that's your uh, mom. Oh my God. She's unbelievable. Uh, I mean, she smoked for 75 years, <laughs> uh, like non-filtered cigarettes, like Paul Malls. And, and she worked, uh, you know, she had a very high powered job. She's just, she's a force of nature. She's just bigger than life. Right. When my mom walks into the room, you feel it. You, you know what I mean? Like, you yeah. feel, Oh, something big just walked in here. Um, they are blunt, sometimes aggressive and combative. Um, we like to say that for some aides, they could start an argument in an empty house. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Right. Uh, they just, they love the juice of it, you know, of, a of, of, um, you know, going, it's just, it's this kind of going up against energy a lot of the time, you know, and, um, but their story centers around the belief that we live in and take advantage of the weak and the innocent. And so they assert strength and power uh, over people and the environment to mask vulnerability and weakness from themselves and others. So underneath all that bravado and that bigness and that toughness and that hardness, there's really a squishy, innocent middle, 
You know what I mean? Yeah. It's just really hard to get to because it's so defended on the outside. Well, again, that story has to change because, you know, uh, what, what does every relationship require? Vulnerability. Mm-hmm. Vulnerability is the currency of relationship. So the eight, you know, as they get older, they realize, hopefully, that, you know what, I got to soften. I got to make room. I got to stop being so afraid of betrayal. I got to learn to trust more. You know, I got to learn to be not just, I need to stop confusing vulnerability with weakness, right? And to make space uh, with some tenderness and openness uh, that, um, you know, I've hidden for a long time. Do you feel like the culture as it's changing today is making it more uh, like for an eight, I think about the patriarchal kind of society of just being tough all the time. You know, um, I think that the culture is evolving in a way where it's making it more um, accessible to be vulnerable. Do you feel that that is happening where people are, are soft? I don't know if softening is the right word, but like opening themselves to a wider range of emotions than maybe they were permitted before? You know, I think so. At least in certain segments of, of society, I think that's true. Um, you know, I think the pandemic has softened some people, mm-hmm. you know, um, just because it's been traumatic, you know, it, it's, it's upended worlds. And, uh, and so I think in some segments it has, and, and I'm, I'm really grateful for that. Um, but also the, you know, let's face it, the, the political and cultural situation has also made some people even harder and more yeah. defended and more aggressive and combative. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I'm sure a lot of people are hearing this right after Christmas. And we all know that some of us went home for Christmas and it was, you know, kind of a, a powder keg waiting to go off if it right. didn't go off. Yeah, yeah. Um, I get that too. And then, okay, so last but not least, the nines, the peacemakers. Yeah, no. Yeah, my wife's a peacemaker. My daughter's mm-hmm. a peacemaker. The peacemaker's story really centers around the unconscious belief that the world thinks their presence doesn't matter, right? Uh, that they have to um, kind of they have to avoid disconnection and keep the peace, right? They believe that they have to go with the flow, avoid conflict, and merge with the preferences and the viewpoints and the priorities of other people. They're they're wonderful. Folks, really, they're easygoing, they're affable, but sometimes later in life, they realize that story now has made them kind of a wallflower, mm. or it, 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 they've kind of um, not really invested in themselves enough because they were always just trying to keep the peace and maintain inner peace and outer peace, uh, and they, they, they didn't learn how to risk becoming um, who they are and asserting themselves. Right. And so like my wife is a nine and in, in midlife, she reached a point where she looked at me one day and it was like, I don't, I don't have a clue what my voice is. I don't have a voice. Mm. And she had to rewrite that story of the peacemaker to find her voice, you know, to find and to assert herself and, and to make herself known to the world. And, you know, nines trapped in that old story have a, have a hard time really doing that. Right. Hmm. So it sounds like to me, out of all of these nine archetypes, we all fit somewhere 
in them. We all see ourselves in some aspect of it, but it sounds like just opening yourself up to a different layer that has been shut off. Would you say that's accurate? And how yeah. do you, how do you, you know, like when, when, when I think about threes, I'm not very competitive, you know, like, and that is one of the things. So when you, when you hear yourself, but it's not all of it, how do you explain that or how, how people are trying to figure out where do I find other than, you know, the tests that they can take online from your website, you know? Yeah. Well, there's two places they can figure it out. One is obviously go to my website and take the IEQ9 assessment. They can also read the road back to you because some yeah. people really learn from just reading. Um, they can also take my new course, Discover You, right? Which is, you know, really about uh, a, a deep dive, an introductory deep dive into the nine types, right? And understanding the Enneagram as a whole. Um and so there's, you know, there's media, there's a book, there's, uh, you know, my podcast typology, you know, w- on which I talk to people of all different types. It's pretty fascinating. Um, and so, I mean, there's a lot of resources to, to begin to do this work. And obviously the story of you, which is kind of interesting because it's helpful to know the Enneagram when you read it, but actually I don't think it's like a requirement. You know, you'll you'll find that one of these stories sounds more like you than any other. Right. Right. You'll identify with pieces of every story, but there's one that sounds more like you than any of the others. Right. And chances are that's your type and that's your story. Why is Enneagram better than to you, better than DISC and Brig Myers Briggs and any of the other personality assessments? Why did Enneagram come forward? Well, and I've worked with a lot of those assessments and, and, and I, I'm a big believer and I encourage people to take any kind of instrument that helps them develop deeper self-knowledge and self-awareness. Mm. But for me, the Enneagram stands out for a few reasons. One is it the Enneagram reveals that what's best about you is what's worst about you and what's worst about you is what's best about you, hmm. right? It's going to reveal the shadow side of your personality type. Strength finders and disc are not going to do that. You know what I'm saying? Like mm. strength finders and disc, it's it's much more niche, right? Secondly, uh, it it doesn't just tell you what you do; it tells you why you do it, and that's super important to know. What is the unconscious motivation that is continuing to drive some of the unhealthy personality traits of my of my type, right? Um, and then lastly, I'd say that I think there, I think it's a superior instrument because it, it recognizes that the human personality is fluid. It's always adapting, right? Your, your personality right now will be different later today when, when you're in the grocery store, or if you get into a fight with your husband tonight, your personality is going to shift and change right. to meet demands. And the Enneagram helps people realize, okay, when I'm under stress, I start to look like this when I'm in mm-hmm. security. I start. I tend to go in this direction, which is terrifically helpful for helping people develop self awareness. So, those are three areas that I'd say are three features of the Enneagram that, for me, make it a superior instrument. Very well answered. What do you know that you wish other people could know? Oh, what do I know that I wish other people could know? Okay, you're an Episcopalian gonna... pastor a best-selling author and a psychotherapist. You've got a yeah. really interesting, like a podcaster. You probably have such an incredible perspective. You know, uh, I would say that 
just in, if I were going to put it in the shortest sentence possible, I want people to know they're beautiful. I want people to know that we live in a, a world that is brimming with grace and love and that they belong in this world and that they can, over time, move toward their most authentic, highest self. It's a lot of work. The journey ain't never going to end, right? And that's kind of what makes life interesting, right, is there is no end to this journey toward becoming, um, realizing our best angels inside, you know? And uh, so that's, that's the thing. I, it sounds so obvious, but I've met so many, I've met so few people who actually believe that they're beautiful, that they're good. I think what's so beautiful about what you said, it was so perfectly said and your whole face lit up for people that are, are listening to this is you belong here. Mm-hmm. I think that's what yeah. I heard over and over as you described people feeling like they didn't belong or that they were going to be rejected. Yes. And, and I, you know, all of us pick up messages as a kid that were not beautiful. I don't care how charming your childhood was. We live in, I mean, just turn on the news. We live in a broken world, right? Mm. And we pick up messages as little people. We pick up stories as little people that are broken. And we pick up messages like, well, you'll only be loved if, you'll only be safe if, you know what I'm saying? It's like, and we have to create a false self to move through the world. We have to create a false story to inhabit. And man, you know, the journey to healing is shedding that old, that old belief system that keeps that old story in place. Mm. How can people find you or work with you or read your book? Yeah, well, they can go on to Amazon, they go into they can walk into Barnes and Noble or an independent bookseller and ask for The Road Back to You, which is my first book, which is an introduction to the Enneagram. And even, you know, better, go in and order my new book or buy my new book, which is called The Story of You, uh, an Enneagram journey toward becoming your true self. And uh then go to my website, Ian Morgan Cron, which is I A N M O R G A N C R O N dot com. They can take my IEQ nine Enneagram assessment. They can discover my courses like uh, Discovering You, which I mentioned a moment ago. Um, there's a host of resources there, and of course, um, socials at Ian Morgan Cron, all across all of them. I have a question. So, based on all of the data that you've collected, just having all of these resources, what is the most popular Enneagram type? Not most popular, most populated. We think sixes. Sixes. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. Now, that's not the type that most listens to my show or buys mm. my materials. Who buys uh, your we, materials? Nines and ones. Interesting. Yeah. Nines and ones. Isn't that fascinating? It is fascinating. <laughs> and I don't even completely understand it yet. But but it is interesting that, that of our audience, of our email list, of everything else, it's like there are more nines and ones than any other type. Oh, that's so great. Thank you so much, Ian. Thank you. This was so enlightening. Thanks, Allison. It was great being with you. Wow. I'm hoping you got so much out of Ian's breakdown of the Enneagram archetypes and how to immediately apply it in your life. Go get Ian Morgan Cron's book, The Story of You, An Enneagram Journey to Becoming Your True Self. 
I've linked his info in the show notes, including the opportunity to take the test online if you don't know what Enneagram number you are. I've linked the book and his contact info in the show notes. Now for me, you've got to send me a DM and let me know what hit it home for you today. And if you could leave me a review on your your favorite podcast player, that would be grand. Links are in the show notes. Share the show. Come back next week. It's going to be fabulous because we are making these changes in our own lives, which help the entire world and change the culture. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.